Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. This is our 18th sermon in our sermon series on the life of Abraham, and our text this evening is Genesis chapter 19, verses 30 through 38, page 14 in the Pew Bible. It's the third and the concluding part of Moses' account of Sodom's destruction. Now we saw last Sunday how our Heavenly Father means to instruct us in warning. We are to remember Lot. And we saw Lot's repeated failures prior to the destruction of Sodom. Indeed, if we only had the Old Testament to go by, we would never have guessed that Lot was a committed believer. But 2 Peter chapter 2 tells us three times that this conflicted, compromised man was righteous. And we saw how distressed and tormented he was by life in Sodom. However, Sodom had entered his heart and soul. And we learn this important biblical principle that it's possible to be distressed by the world while still hanging onto it for dear life. To be distressed by the world, but still hanging onto it. And we saw how Lot had left Ur as part of Abram's faithful household. He journeyed the 800 miles to Canaan with Abram and his family. The passing of time, he imperceptibly slips away from God. We see it first when he's given the choice of land by his uncle. He succumbs to the lush Jordan Valley, pitching his tents, we read in chapter 13, as far as Sodom, next living in Sodom in chapter 14, and as we saw, sitting at the gate of Sodom in chapter 19. He became a man of influence in that doomed city. But consequences followed. Lot shows himself impotent during the threatening of his angel guests, offering his daughters to appease the Sodomite mob. We see him hesitating at the angel's call to flee the city, so much so that the angels have to grab him by the lapels, as it were, and take him and his family by the hand to drag them along outside the city gates, all the while whimpering, asking to be exempted from fleeing to the mountains, whining a compromise. Couldn't I just take refuge in this little itty-bitty Sodom suburb, which becomes Zoar. But did you notice what was left out here? Lot never asks to return to Abraham or to the tents of Abraham. All through the embarrassing story, Moses underlines for us quietly how fear can cloud our judgment to the harm of ourselves, both spiritually and physically. So it's likely that Lot perhaps projected his own sinfulness 
on his godly uncle and therefore hesitated to return to him. Now, it's very rare for a believer to remain among believers when their moral failure is known, isn't it? Better to hide, to seek another way, than to be restored to fellowship. But we must not forget also the wider context and theology of Genesis as we've studied it over these years, the conflict between the two seeds. We see it here, you see. The seed of the woman, Abraham and his heavenly perspective, ultimately walking with God as Enoch and Noah had done, seeking the city not made with hands. And then the seed of the serpent, Sodom and its citizens, the city of man, and how Lot himself is drawn into it. And so Moses ends his account at the lowest possible point. It's Moses' last word, Lot never appears in Genesis again. And so Moses sets out Lot's descent, driven by fear. His unnamed daughter's descent is driven by worldliness. But it concludes in hope, as once again, the future of Lot's descendants enter the biblical narrative and indeed become a keystone in our own salvation. First, let's begin with Lot's descent, fear, in verse 30. Now, Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. He lived in a cave with his two daughters. Now, look how Moses describes how fear creates a restlessness in our hearts. We see it in Lot's attitude to Zoar. We we see how fear had driven him there. And now fear blindly drives him out again. Fear has brushed aside the call to abandon Sodom. And now fear brushes aside the pledge of God to preserve the very city that Lot is in. Now, there's an irony here too, isn't there? Do you notice how the angels told Lot to flee to the hill country? Yet he thought otherwise, didn't he? He wanted to stay in Zoar and still have a place among the people of the Jordan Valley. But now he realizes what? The angels were right. So he leaves and travels to where? The hill country. He is afraid to stay. Now Moses doesn't explain what causes this. Perhaps there was further geological instability that threatened the region. Perhaps the people of Zoar, seeing these three, the Lot and his daughters, as the sole survivors, grew suspicious and thought them to perhaps be the cause of the destruction and sought revenge. But rather, Moses wants us to see how fear drives Lot to end up in a cave. Now, the article is here in the original. It is the cave. So it's not just about geography. Rather, as we've seen, when when Moses uses this term in his language, he's talking further, more of the spiritual condition. It's Lot's spiritual condition. He's in a cave. 
how it's changed, hasn't it? One day, he lives in a city, a person of influence, luxury, wealth within his grasp, has a house, well outfitted for his family, and indeed, multiple guests as he took the angels home with him. Now he lives in a cave in a cleft of a hillside. And here's the thing, you see, the cave indicates something further for us because a cave was a place of burial, of burial. We'll see later on how Abraham purchases the cave of Machpelah as a tomb for his wife, for himself, and for his descendants. We'll read later in Genesis for your homework how Jacob is also buried in that cave. He's gone from sophisticated metropolitan to living like a dead man. The next time we see the tombs of the dead and someone living within them, it's when Jesus heals the demoniac in Gesserine, living amongst the tombs. It's Lot's spiritual deadness that's underlined here and the consequences for his family as well. Without that compass and example in their father, the unnamed daughters descend driven in worldliness. Let's see what that's like. Verses 31 to 32 tell the story. And the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old. There's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine. We will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. Now, what sort of errors are already being made here by these young ladies? Well, they clearly think that the destruction of the cities has been a global catastrophe rather than a local one. They are convinced that no one could have survived. Therefore, they are the last people alive on the earth. One consequence is is that they see a future with no prospect of husbands or of children. This is important in terms of status, but also in terms of future security. For the cultural expectation was that your children would care for you when you were elderly. And indeed, that is why we find in the Old Testament and in the New, the special provision for widows for those without children. Now, in terms of incest, it was wrong in every Bronze Age culture in the Fertile Crescent. Now, we know from the Old Testament, it forbids a man having relations with his daughters or daughters-in-law, and the penalty was death. But the Code of Hammurabi likewise forbids it. Indeed, ancient Hittite law also forbids it, punishing the aggressor with death. Now, the daughters would have known this, wouldn't they? Which is why they sought to cover their transgression in darkness and drunkenness and deception. I mean, this is dark, isn't it? The the deeds take place at night in a cave. There could scarce be a darker place on the earth. Now it's evident that Lot's life choices had promoted his daughters absorbing the spirit of Sodom into some sort of pragmatic worldliness. Life in Sodom had repeatedly demonstrated before his daughter's eyes how wine and sensuality worked together 
weakening a man's control so that he was capable of anything. And deception, well, of course, that is a way of life in Sodom. Lot was a part of it. We saw how he tried to deceive the mob in taking his daughters, thereby incurring the death penalty themselves because they were already betrothed and engaged. They saw this. His deception was so spiritually charged and so domestically lethal. He's distressed, but outwardly he says nothing or little. For rightness is a liability in Lot's life because it would have jeopardized his standing with those he wanted to have relationships with. So he had mastered the craft of turning a blind eye and a deaf ear to the social and indeed the sexual violence in Sodom. He didn't do them. He did not approve of them. But he never spoke out against them. Blasphemy, filthy speech, immorality are met with a smile, a deaf deflection. And his daughters witnessed this as they grew up. This feckless character that used guile and shrewdness to mask what he really thought. He has become what? The Christian, the believer, an expert at survival in the world. Survival in the face of the world's demands, appeasement, compromise, guile. His daughters could not forget that he had offered them in order to appease the inflamed men of Sodom in a terrible betrayal of a father's responsibility. So when this successive father-daughter seduction takes place, his girls use the survival skills they had been taught from the master, their own father, and by his example. It was his wine, his deceit, his betrayal, all mixed together and served in an infamous cup in the dark depths of a cave. Their dishonor of him was brilliant because with cruel irony, he himself carried out the shameful act he had first suggested to the men of Sodom. And like Noah before him, the two narratives of God's judgment and mercy in the flood and in Sodom, we see here two men who were spared God's wrath, succumbed to the very sins of those who had died in judgment. But there's hope. But there's hope in the offspring, as the paragraph concludes in verses 36 and 38. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. So... Strategy successful, pregnancy, birth of two sons. Now we don't read Lot's reaction to any of this. You must have realized what had happened. But Moses reveals instead the names of the two sons and their legacy up to the present day. 
Now here's where it gets interesting. Moab is in the Hebrew from my father. So it was pretty plain what the name said. Ben-Ami means literally the son of my paternal kinsman. Both have the sense that, well, yes, Lot is the father. What a way to begin life. Two boys. Now, those who may read through the Old Testament will know of the subsequent history of the two sons' descendants. The Moabites inhabit the territory east of the Dead Sea. The Ammonites are located in the same region, just further south. Now, we must be clear here right away. The circumstances of the boy's origin do not give rise to judgment against them or their descendants. Very important, this. We must resist becoming the Pharisee here, don't we? This is a man born blind because of his parents' sin. Indeed, this past week, in a tutorial with young ministers, we discussed baptism. And that when a family brings a child to baptism. And they've not seen them before in the life of the church. And they discover that they have, well, let's say, well, they're a life which has a lot of difficulties within it. The question we discussed was, do we still baptize the child? Well, in the end, we realize that grace triumphs. And we must not set conditions aside from a time of preparation so they understood why the child was being baptized and we were able to present to them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we all agreed how wonderful it was that every time a family came to have a child baptized in the covenant of Jesus Christ, that it gave us the opportunity, the joy really, to share Jesus Christ with them. And indeed, many of us, well, many of us, I suppose it would be me being the old guy in the group, had examples of families that had come to Christ because of it. So we must take care here. These boys are covenant children, and so they're part of God's covenant provision. Their origin is not held against them, and the regions where they settle are lands that God gives them and their descendants. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 9. This is what it says. The Lord said to Moses, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given that land to the people of Lot for a possession. And in verse 19 of the same chapter, he says exactly the same thing of the people of Ammon. But we also learn why. Why was there an enmity between Israel and Moab, Israel and Ammon? It was because those countries, those peoples, had a hostility against Israel. And it's a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse. And so you will find in Numbers 24 how the king of Moab enlists Balaam, to curse Israel. But what happens? The Lord reverses the curse for a blessing. 
So the king of Moab resorts to different means and brings about the seduction of the men of Israel with Moabite women that leads them to idolatry. And the same way Ammon introduces the god Molech to Israel. Now, Molech is the sacrifice of newborn infants to the fire. That was what was required. That's why it was the great abomination you find in the prophets. It came from Ammon. And in case we have any doubt that the contention of seeds is still going on, even here, consider Balaam's blessing in Numbers 24. This is what he wrote. This is what he said. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. A star of Israel crushed the forehead. Where have you heard language like that before? Well, Genesis 3.15, haven't you? Wickedness will be crushed. But there's still more here. Because the hope of salvation comes through the line of Lot. What am I talking about? Well, Ruth, the Moabite, the Moabite woman. She becomes the ancestor of King David and ultimately of the Lord Jesus Christ himself and is listed in both the genealogy of Matthew and of Luke. Our Savior is descended through Moab as well as Israel. And today, every Jew or Gentile becomes a true son or daughter of Abraham through Christ of the house of David. But I also think there's an encouragement for every Christian parent here as well. Now, how in the world could I find some encouragement for Christian parents here? Well, I think for all of us, as we've led household worship over the years, we probably have had more failures than successes. In other words, it hasn't gone exactly the way we hoped. And we, we are concerned about that because we understand our responsibility before the Lord for our children and their spiritual growth and knowledge and love of the Lord. But, well, we just don't know at times, do we? Well, the scripture testifies something here for us. That God brings the Savior from a family tainted with failures, with Lot's failures. So where is that encouraging word for us as Christian parents today? That God can also overcome our failed efforts for our children. There's always hope for the godly. We may not live to see it, but there is always hope because indeed, even at this darkest of dark times, Ruth, Moab, and our Savior arose. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church ancient truth, 
real people, new life.